with um, the Joneses, and actually I noticed I had their bulletin in my Bible. They have a little, the mini bulletin. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it actually got it's got a tear off bar. I didn't notice that. That's cool. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't do that. Oh well. Um, <clears throat> just want to pray before we get started too. There's a lot of people. Uh, I don't know. Some of you have family members. Both my kids, or two of my boys, both of my boys are sick and have been. A lot of people struggling with the flu and viruses. So let's just pray health. Can we just uh, think of someone that you know or if you're struggling uh, in this? We just come to the Lord. Uh, so, Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, we believe that you have the power, that your power is, uh, is available today for supernatural healing. <clears throat> and we believe that that applies to all forms of sickness, all forms of affliction. And Lord, we just pray that everyone, our loved ones, every, every member of this church, Lord, that you would just, uh, your, the virtue in your body would extend into their physical bodies and heal them. Father, we pray that uh, even though this may be just seasonal colds or, or just the, the flu, Lord, we pray that your power would uh, be revealed against all infection and all infirmity. Father, we pray blessing in our natural uh, immune systems to overcome every disease. Lord, that uh, we just pray uh, healing in Jesus' name. And Father, let it be evident. Let uh, the sick rise up and be healthy in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees said... Amen. Good news, this is the last Sunday in February. February is always a hard month. It's like, come on, let's get through February. Spring is on its way. (laughs) Yeah, all right. Well, we're continuing in our series of the Sermon on the Mount. And um, the whole vision of this is just taking taking a look at the sermon verse by verse, not being in a hurry. Normally I try to finish a series in four weeks. But this uh, introduction, as this will be the fourth part of the series so far, and, I'm, and this will be the end of the introduction. So that just gives you an idea of what you're in for. <laughs> All right, but hopefully it'll be good. We're going to read uh, 4, verse 24, chapter 4, verse 24 through 5, 2, and then we'll talk about it. So it's, Then his fame, Jesus, uh, went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And seeing the multitude, he went up on a mountain, and he was seated, uh, and, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and then begins the sermon. But we're just going to look at this um, as, again, part of the introduction to uh, the sermon. And, and, and this is a couple of verses that's easy just to read through. If you're reading through the Bible, you just read through those thinking, uh, well, we've got to get to the main point. But, you know, every verse in the Bible is the main point. And there's, there's stuff that we can, we can uh, gather out. And I hope to share some things that will be meaningful for you today. And, and, and particularly, this first part is about Jesus' fame. It says, all Syria, Galilee, and from the Decapolis. Decapolis is literally ten cities. There were ten cities in this particular region. And they just referred to them as, as to one, even though they were, uh, because they were so close. They referred to them the area of the ten cities. Jerusalem, of course, a city of old, um, uh, central to the story of the Bible throughout uh, the centuries, uh, the center of, of Israel. 
Judea, which is the whole region, <clears throat> and beyond the Jordan. Um, so, for you and I, growing up in America, most of us, in the 21st, 20th, and 21st century, you know, those cities are meaningless. They're like a bunch of foreign places. We, we, we you know, maybe be able to look up in a dictionary and maybe heard their names, but they don't mean anything to us. But to the people that Matthew wrote this to, particularly, and the original audience uh, that was reading this, and to anyone that was a Jew or familiar with uh, Jewish history, the, this list is very significant. All right? And so to those who first read it, and to us who have the ability to study and to learn, and if you, if you read through the, the Old Testament, uh, you'll realize that this list uh, is, is uh, quite, quite significant. Uh, and would have been especially to those alive uh, when it was first uh, published. It is the whole, uh, by, by running through that list of, of cities and regions, it's basically the whole of the Holy Land. All right? It is the region that was promised to Abraham long, long ago. It's the whole of the area that was ruled by David. It's the whole of the area that was lost to the foreigners because of sin and human failure. And now we see that whole region. So as we read through, as you read through the whole Old Testament, it's the whole region that is the centerpiece of the story of the Old Testament and the people of Israel. Now people from all of those lands, all of that area, all of the promised land are coming to Jesus Christ. They're coming. He's, he's beginning to influence uh, all of what was promised uh, to Abraham, even where it says uh, uh, beyond the Jordan, remember when the Israelites came back from Egypt and some of the tribes settled be on the other side of the Jordan, but they promised to fight for the Israelites. And so there's it's, it's the, all of the promised land, even including that region. <clears throat> and so um, all that was promised to Abraham, all that was ruled by David, all that was lost, Jesus is gathering together. And he's, he's, he's bringing restoration, not politically. You know, he didn't start a new political party. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't just start a political party, right? He didn't uh, take this over. He's not ruling it by military. He didn't gather together an army. And that's what many of the Jews were expecting. They were expecting someone like David, someone that could, you know, kill giants with a slingshot. Uh, and that's what they were looking for. And Jesus didn't come that way. He came a different way. <clears throat> and so they weren't ready for it. But rather, he, not politically, not militarily, but he established a kingdom that was not of this earth. It was the kingdom of God. And that's the kingdom that he preached. All right? So Jesus is presented uh, uh, in this gospel and by Matthew uh, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry as the one who comes to restore, to gather together all that was lost, and to offer hope for restoration. Now, just imagine these Jews living in the first century, living at the time of Jesus. I mean, um, they were raised under the rule of, of the Roman Empire. And it had been over 400 years, close to 500 years before 
when that all had happened with Babylon and, and when, the, when the temple had been destroyed. And, so, um, and, and, and even then, it was hundreds and hundreds of years before that uh, that there were any good stories <laughs> from the Old Covenant. So just think, you know, five, four, over 400 years, that's like twice as old as the United States. Promises to their ancient forefathers. And so these people growing up, you know, had, you know, they knew about those stories, but it was completely disconnected from them in so many ways. And, 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 the, and the chance of, of, of seeing restoration probably seemed impossible, right? Don't you think? You know, if we think of something back in the, in the Revolutionary War, we can hardly imagine how, how, how it worked. But these were promises to the people, uh, to the descendants of Abraham, that Jesus comes as the restorer, the one who's going to fulfill all those promises, the hope. He was offering hope for restoration. And what was lost over countless generations, Jesus was gathering together into one. Just think how quickly it happened, actually, that right from the beginning, Jesus was already gathering people from all those lands. Now, part of this sermon is not just to teach you facts about history. As important as that is. <clears throat> All right? And I want you to understand that we, it, it's important that we understand the historical um, truths of the historical information and how it was received. But it's more important that we understand how, that how those historical truths can affect and apply to our lives. And so it's true that Jesus offered hope for restoration for the promises of the people that, that, that he was speaking to and, and he was addressing to the Sermon on the Mount. But what does that mean to you and I? Because right? the Bible is not just a book about what God did. It's not a textbook, right? A history book about what God did. It's really a book about what God does. All right? Got it? So what, does, what, can, that, what can this mean uh, so when you read something like this, we learn, wow, Jesus came, He's presented as a, as a restorer, and we see all these people from the promise, promised land coming to Him. Well, what does that mean to you and I? Well, it means that He offers hope and restoration. All right? Just like He did to those people. Whatever He offered to them, He offers to you. Whatever's been uh, lost, He's the one who comes to restore. Even things lost. You know, they lost the land because of sin. And because of human weakness, because of failure. Well, Jesus comes to restore that. And He comes to restore all of it. So whatever you have lost, whatever we have lost, whatever bondage, they were in bondage. They were slaves in a sense. Their, their, whole, their whole society was under the dominion of the Roman Empire. Well, we're, wherever you or I are in bondage because of failure, or because of the failure, you know, it wasn't their fault. The people who were alive in Jesus' day... Was it? I mean, it had been that way for generations. So generational issues that you are under, Jesus comes and presents the hope for restoration. So whether it's your failure or the, the failure of the families, that your family line has always been afflicted with you know, uh, poverty or addiction or whatever, Jesus comes as the one who restores and offers hope. He's the one. He offers a new way of, of life. Now let's go on. Um, uh, 
in the comparison of, uh, of, of Moses. You know, it says in verse 1, chapter 5, it says, Seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, with his, disciple, his disciples came to him. And then he opened up his mouth and began to talk, uh, teach. And he taught them. I'm going to read from Erdman's uh, Bible commentary. It says, um, It is natural to see Jesus as the new Moses, delivering the new Torah, the law, with new authority. So, um, the parallel here comes to mind when Jesus goes up on a mountain. Remember what Moses did after they left Egypt? What did he do? He went up on a mountain. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, he, and what did he get up there? The, yeah, the Word of the Lord. <clears throat> the, the Ten Words. Uh, the Ten Commandments. And he also received the revelation of, of, of the tabernacle. And, and, and basically, God downloaded how... the a nation of Israel was to live and he came back down. <clears throat> and so here we have Jesus represented uh, in that same way or pictured in the same way. And uh, the commentary says that it's natural to see Jesus as a new Moses delivering a new Torah or law with new authority, but it is not a new legalism. Despite the emphasis on the importance of law and the danger of antinomianism. Okay, let's all say antinomianism. <laughs> Is that, for those of you who have never said that word before, raise your hand. <laughs> Glory. <clears throat> you know, like, what is antinomianism? Well, it's actually an influence that is influencing all of you. And you don't know it. <laughs> it is. It's, it's evil. Um, and it's actually influencing the church, especially the church in America right now, because there's some, some particular uh, people who are theologians um, and teachers, influencers, young preachers, have kind of bought into this idea of antinomianism. And it's really kind of silly because they think it's like this new idea. It's like this new understanding, like they've got this new revelation. And really it's a really old idea that the church basically dealt with way back in the first century. Um, and if they just read the history books, it really wouldn't be much of a discussion, but <clears throat> some people just don't, don't remember. Antinomianism is a heresy that says moral law is of no use or obligation because faith alone is necessary to salvation. Okay, so it's the idea that we're saved by faith, all right, by grace, all right, and that by faith, right? And it's not by works, right? You're saved by faith and not works, right? So works don't matter, right? So you might as well go. Well, there you go. <laughs> so you might as well go do whatever you want because we're saved by grace and not works. So works don't matter. We're not saved by works, and so you know, getting stoned is just a work. And I'm not saved by works, and so I can I can use drugs, or you know, I can I can have sex with as many people as I want, or I can you know think whatever. You know, it's it's not about those constraints. Uh, of legalism. Those are all constraints of legalism. You don't understand. Those, that's not what, what the kingdom is about. That's antinomianism. All right? And it's really influential. Now, they usually don't use that term because they know that it's a heresy, but they'll teach that you know, that uh, lifestyle uh, behaviors don't matter because we're under grace. But Jesus doesn't teach that. He actually confronts that uh, quite, quite uh, vigorously uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> Let me go on reading the, um, uh, 
That was just a definition of that one word from the commentary. I'll continue the commentary quote. The real criticism is directed not against the Old Testament law, but against the rabbinic interpretation of it. In other words, what the rabbis had kind of uh, settled for and their interpretation. So Jesus is kind of clarifying the understanding of the Old Testament. Matthew shows how Jesus radicalizes the demands of God. You know, Jesus never diminishes or, or reduces the demands of God. He actually makes them much, much more radical, revealing it to be something that deals with the inward man and which can be worked out only through the power of love. It is moral teaching, teaching, and I talked about this a few weeks ago, the didache, the line upon line uh, instruction type of teaching, but it is set within the framework of preaching, the curriculum which is uh, declarations that are meant or intended to be believed and obeyed. All right, so it's teaching, uh, but presented with in the sense of preaching. Listen, you need to obey this. This is truth. This is the way it is. It can be attempted only by the man who has responded to the challenge of the kingdom presented by Jesus and who seeks to obey on the basis of grace. The perfection demanded does not mean that there is a double standard, but that the new life of sonship in Christ is the only basis on which the principles are uh, set out are in any way attainable. Okay? <clears throat> and the, I underline that, that, that last sentence of that, that the new life of sonship in Christ is the only basis on which the principles set out are in any way attainable. And so as Jesus and as we study the Sermon on the Mount, we have to understand that Jesus is declaring a lifestyle. That the only way we can attain this lifestyle is through having a real relationship, uh, a sonship relationship or, 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 uh, as a child uh, to the Father through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only real way that we can uh, enable or that we are enabled or empowered to live these demands that Christ sets for us. And he's not in any way removing the demand of, of living morally. He's actually raising the bar significantly. But he's showing us a new way. He's offering us a new way to actually fulfill what in the Old Testament no one could ever fulfill. You know, And that was the whole point of the law was that you cannot fulfill it apart from having the relationship in Christ. So Matthew portrays Christ and, and Jesus is portrayed at the beginning of his ministry as the fulfillment. There's an old uh, prophecy that Moses said that God would raise up a prophet like unto him. And, 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 and without doubt, Matthew is writing this with that in mind, that Jesus comes fulfilling that long-awaited prophecy. But the comparison to Moses, you know, you don't want to stretch that too far. It's just one other way that Jesus is fulfilling the old, uh, is, 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 is living as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And, and this whole idea of fulfilling, you know, it doesn't mean that he's, it's, it's not an end or a removal of the old, okay? I think it's important that we use the term fulfillment, um, uh, not replacement, uh, um, because there's a difference, all right? Christ uh, brings what was promised to Abraham and what was declared to Moses to its fulfillment. Right? He fills it up 
to overflow. Everything that they spoke of, everything that was promised, He actually fills. He fulfills everything and He lives in it. And, and, and when you understand that, it's not like He's offering an alternative to uh, what God said in the first three-fourths of His book. <laughs> you know, He actually comes and says, this is how you actually live. What, what, I have been, what God has been presented. He comes to fulfill, not to replace. <clears throat> uh, significant in understanding both the Old and the New Testament. Moving on. What he's really talking about is discipleship. And we see that. He sits down on the mountain. His disciples come to him, but there's also a multitude. Seeing the multitude, he sits down. His disciples come close and surrounded, surrounding that would be the multitude. And I, I've, I, you know, I, I, I uh, look through a bunch of different resources that, uh, as I'm studying and, you know, and, and one resource will say, you know, he's obviously not talking to the multitude. He's just talking to the, the to his disciples. But you know, he kind of addresses the multitude a little bit later on. And and others are no, he's talking to both. And uh, I think um, the, the idea or what I see in it is that he's speaking to his disciples in the midst of the multitude. You know, it's not like this is a separate little class. He's there on the mountain. He went up on the mountain to address the multitude, right? Not to hide from them. Um, And it's uh, the idea of the disciples, just to clarify, you know, a lot of times I find Christians, when they hear the word disciple, they think of the twelve. And and often in in the New Testament, the word disciple means, is is referring to the twelve. But most often, it's referring to the group of all the individuals that had accepted Jesus as a uh, legitimate uh, teacher, uh, um, and later as as savior, as Messiah, even uh, you know maybe they didn't know the fullness of it, but they they basically were there whenever Jesus had a meeting. All right, uh, they were convinced Jesus was real. Uh, they were followers of Christ, <clears throat> uh, and that, so that it was out of that group of three to five hundred at least that he sent seventy at one point, and it was out of that group that he called the twelve, and those he renamed apostles. So when it says disciples, it's actually just talking about this larger group of people. And But when it says multitude, it's talking about just everybody happened to show up. Now, those could have been Pharisees. They could have been people that just heard Jesus gives out free food. You know, <laughs> right? They, they could have been someone with a bad leg hoping Jesus was going to do some healing ministry. They could have been guys looking for girls. You know, it's just the multitude. Right? It's like the masses. So Jesus, this is the setting. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to communicate the setting of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking to his disciples in the midst of the multitude. In effect, this is King Jesus' inaugural address. And that kind of gives us a, a, a contemporary picture, you know, like when we elect a new king, or a new king. <laughs> <laughs> We don't do that, do we? <laughs> when we elect a new president, president, you know, he'll have a State of the Union address and uh, set out, you know, this is the way it's going to be, maybe. <laughs> but King Jesus, this is his inaugural address, and it explains the expectations of the members of his kingdom. All right, and to understand the sermon over the course of the summer, as we're as we're uh, discussing it. We have to understand that these are the expectation of those who 
who are part of his kingdom. Um, he's really talking about discipleship. Uh, he's making the expectations known publicly. So it's a public declaration of, uh, of what he expects his disciples to live. The sermon thus makes no... This is a quote from the, the commentary by a man named France. So the sermon thus makes no claim to present an ethic for all men. Indeed, much of it would make no sense as a universal code. It is concerned not with ethics in general, but with discipleship, with the man or woman, the person, and his, his, his or her obedience and devotion to God, not with a pattern for society. And I think it's extremely important that we understand the Sermon on the Mount in this light. Okay? That the Sermon on the Mount is about discipleship. It's not about ethics in general or a, a, a pattern for society. Now, the Old Testament law was a pattern for society. The whole nation of Israel was required to operate under this societal pattern. And even today, most even secular governments refer to the Ten Commandments as a foundational uh, aspect of their moral law. Okay? Because you know what? That's, it was meant to be. <laughs> you know, God intended it that way. But there's a different intention, bless you, there's a different purpose for the Sermon on the Mount. And so to understand and therefore to live out the Sermon on the Mount, you need to understand that, that this is not just an, another law in that aspect. It's actually something different and actually something um, greater, something more superior uh, than, you know, just everything Jesus did is superior than what Moses did. That's another whole sermon. <laughs> All right. Um, Da, 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 da. Yeah, Jesus, the sermon, Jesus in the sermon is going deeper, more radical, requiring of his disciples a higher standard than civil law. And this is important. You know, we, we fight to, to, to hold on as much as we can and to implement into civil law uh, righteous standards. That's the right thing to do. But we must understand that um, something is not right or wrong based on whether it is legal or illegal. All right? Because we live by a different standard. All right? And it's the standard of discipleship. It's the standard of following King Jesus. And so we fight that battle, but we realize that's kind of like holding back the, the, the bursting dam all right, of unrighteousness. But our lifestyle needs to be a lifestyle of discipleship that's actually far above those, those things. All right? And in actuality, the only way we will really have effect on the issues of civil law is if we're living on the level of discipleship. All right? And if we're not living on the level of, of, of sonship, of, of being a, a child of God, and, and living in that anointing and in that power, we're not going to have any real effect down here. And that's where so many Christians end up losing this battle because they're actually living on that level instead of living on this level. Does that make sense? Um, let's move on. So, to interpret it legalistically, the commentator goes on, as a set of rules is to miss the point. It represents a demand more radical than any legislator could conceive, going far beyond what human nature can meet, a demand for perfection. And in verse 48 of chapter 5, Jesus actually says, You shall be perfect. 
just as your Father in heaven is perfect. How would you like the state legislator of Michigan to get together? They're going to write a new law. Every resident of Michigan must be perfect, just as God in heaven is perfect. That'd be awesome. All violators will be put to death. Not that part. <laughs> we'll be imprisoned for 30 years. Uh, it's ridiculous, right? That's not a law. This is why you can't understand it as civil law. Because the requirement is cannot be met in, in the setting of civil law. Because the, ex, the requirements are... It's, it's, too, it's more than what a, a normal person, a normal society can actually uh, follow, right? <clears throat> Let's see, um, the sermon thus far, uh, thus, far from being just a collection of moral precepts, it presents the radical demand of Jesus the Messiah on all who respond to his preaching of God's kingdom. Okay, so this isn't Jesus saying, this is what the law should look like. This is Jesus saying, this is what your life should look like if you're going to follow my call to be a disciple. Right? This is personal to you and to God, to Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount compels us, in reading it and understanding it this way, compels us to ask, and this is a quote from the book, from the commentator, compels us to ask in the first place who he is, who utters these words. In other words, if you were sitting there listening to Jesus as he's sitting down on this hill or mountain and there's hundreds, possibly thousands of people, maybe you happen to get a front row seat and you're close enough you can hear him and you hear him start talking like this, you know what? You think, and, and I think, because we've been brought up in church or maybe you're here in church and you think, boy, if I could just hear Jesus you know, it would be, oh, if I lived during Jesus' day, I would, I would, oh, it would be so wonderful. But you know what? You'd be listening to him talk and you'd go, who does he think he is? Like, what? Got to be perfect like God? Who do you think I am? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are saying that? And you know why that would be come to your mind? Because that's exactly what the purpose of the gospel and the purpose of the sermon is meant to provoke in you. Okay? In other words, Jesus' teaching and the way Jesus is presented is presented in a way that if you really read it without religious presumption, if you read it like God really expects you to live this way, you should step back and go, who does Jesus think He is? Because who Jesus is is the real point of the sermon. Who Jesus is is the real point of the, of the whole book of Matthew. Alright? Who Jesus is is the real point of human history. Because who Jesus is determines your destiny and the destiny of mankind. All right? It's the personhood of Jesus Christ. And so stepping back and going, who do you think you are? Is the right question. 
That's why Jesus said it in the way He said it. So that you'd have to struggle with, how can you require me to live a level of perfection that only God can live? How can you require that? You have to struggle with that. And let me tell you, if you don't struggle with that, you haven't really embraced Christianity. Alright? Because you haven't gotten it. You've read the passages, oh, that's sweet. Oh, if only everyone would do that. Blessed be the poor. Oh yeah, blessed be the poor. You haven't gotten it. You haven't let it get down to your gut level. Because you need to cry out, Jesus, who are you that requires me to live that way? Because it's the answer to that, that question that actually enables you to live that way. Did you get that? It's the answer to the question, who is Jesus? That it enables you to live the way that He requires. If you, am I making any sense? <clears throat> All right, let me let me get, tell you a story from when I was a kid in college. <laughs> when I was a youngster, <laughs> like some of you, <laughs> I was I had gotten saved after my freshman years, in between my freshman and sophomore year, and I'd I'd taken a year off college, off uh, high school. I took a gap year. <laughs> went on a trip. <laughs> and uh, then I went to college. And so this is a few years after, after high school. And then I got saved. And I went back to college. <clears throat> and, uh, and I was on fire because I'd, I'd gotten radically saved. And there was this, uh, I got to finish. I'm going over, but I'm going to tell the story. I was like, oh, wow, general ed class, Christian traditions. That'll be great. I'll, I'll learn about the the history of, G, of, the, of the church. You know, that's what I thought. <clears throat> but I got to class, and it turns out this professor wasn't really concerned about the history of the church. He had an agenda, all right? And I learned really quickly that he was not a man of faith. He was a man of reason. He was the most educated, intelligent person. I still, I've never met anyone on his level. The dude, every word, you just pick a word out of the dictionary without him looking, and he'd know the Latin root, the Greek root, the German root, every root language. He knew all the languages. He probably knew every language. Every language that came up, he knew it. <laughs> you know, it was, just, it was astounding. He knew the Bible better than anyone I've ever talked to. He could quote whole passages. He knew everything about it. But he did, he did not believe in the supernatural, right? He had come to the place <clears throat> through learning that he had gotten uh, to where, you know, miracles are impossible. Therefore, <clears throat> when miracles are described in the Bible, they are like myths that teach us important lessons, right? Now, he would argue that they were important lessons. So we have to understand the Bible in the way of what important lesson is this mythical depiction uh, supposedly portraying. All right? And so it's really religious, <laughs> um, but really wrong. And so it ended up being me and him. Our, no one else in the class would talk. <laughs> we would just argue. Every class, it was just arguing back and forth. Um, yeah, it was crazy. But I remember him clearly referring to the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, he said, obviously, it's obvious that Jesus did not intend 
on his disciples to literally live this. And he quoted, you know, he says, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has committed adultery in her heart. That's ridiculous. No one could ever expect, you know, people to live that way. How can you, how can you prevent that from happening? I mean, he, he, his proof that Jesus didn't mean this literally was that it was impossible. All right? And so since it was impossible, oh, he's just teaching us an ideal that we should strive toward. And, and striving toward good ideals will create a better society. <laughs> and so that's why he was, his, his understanding of the sermon was based on his belief that supernatural was impossible, was based on the belief that Jesus didn't rise from the dead because no one rise, you know, dead people don't come back to life. That's impossible. So that didn't really happen. That was myth. All right. Uh, all of that was built on this idea, uh, his understanding of who Jesus was. The reason he could not accept Jesus' teaching as what Jesus taught was because he could not accept who Jesus was. Because he did not accept the identity, the person of Jesus Christ, he could not understand the real meaning of the Sermon on the Mount. All right? And that Jesus was calling us to, to live a lifestyle of faith and love in relationship with Him as reigning Lord. Okay? That He's not dead and he's not just a religious teacher buried in a grave, but he's Lord. And he's alive. And his power is available to you to not lust. Okay? I'm going to talk about miracles. You know, there's miracles of raising people from the dead and healing people. That's great. But you know what? We need the miracle of living righteously. We need the miracle of looking at something that's a temptation and not being tempted. Okay? We need the miracle of speaking you know, words that edify only coming out of our mouth, all right? We need a miracle of being able to love people who are unlovable, you know, unlikable. What we can, you know, Jesus died for those kind of people. We need to be willing to do that too. And so it's understanding who Jesus is empowers us to understand what he taught and furthermore empowers us to live and actually obey what the sermon uh, calls us to obey. Does that make sense? So, <clears throat> the question I end with is, who is Jesus to you? Have you accepted Jesus as Lord? Are you ready to receive His teaching, not merely as ethical ideas, not merely as de- uh, but as rather as demands of discipleship, the culture of His kingdom, the conduct expected of those who respond to his call, follow me. See, Jesus says, follow me. And what that means is to live in the way that he describes. That's what the sermon uh, is, teaches us. All right, they have some announcements. God bless you.